Welcome to the C3 Silicon Valley Church Podcast. Senior pastors Adam and Kira Smalcom are so excited to share this message with you and believe that God will speak to you through it. Here at C3SV, we know that God has the best in store for you today and every day. Verses in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. I love that it says by grace, period. Not grace and something. Not grace in your good works. Not grace in your behaviour. Not grace and the law. Not grace. It's just by grace. It goes on to say, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are a fine piece of work. Translation, you are His workmanship. Come on, let's get a little bit loose this morning. I mean, you guys are way too... Stiff and rigid. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're a fine piece of work. That's what the Bible says. Husbands, I hope you said it to your wives right then. I hope, that was, hope your neighbour was your wife and not the other person sitting on the other side. Hey, let me keep back in the Bible. It says, you are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, could and would walk in them. How many people love the Word of God? I tell you, I am so excited for the message that God has for us today as we come around the Word of God this morning. I know that it's going to be trans, uh, transformational for some people. God is going to set some freedom out in this place today. But I'm also excited for what God has in store for us next Sunday. Next Sunday being our Easter Sunday. And i got to tell you, I'm particularly excited about the Word that God has been preparing in me for some time now about next Sunday, really this whole series that we've been in, this Not Religious, Neither Are We series has been gearing up to Easter Sunday, where we're going to preach a message around the most scandalous story in history. How many people know the cross of Christ is a scandalous story of grace? Grace is scandalous, my friend. I was at the uh, at our, our gym this week and talking to a guy who goes to our gym and he, he was mentioning just in passing because he saw our bumper sticker, he saw our Not Religious series. He said, oh, man, just this week he was really disheartened. He said, the, the church I've been attending for such a long time, they, they just made a decision this week because they haven't been growing. In fact, the church has been declining. They made a decision to, to uh, make church a bit more seeker friendly. I said, well, what, what does that mean? He said, well, we decided to be a little bit more PC and made a decision because the Bible is a little bit offensive. We made a decision that we're not going to, really just use the Bible in our sermons anymore. We'll just refer to it so that we don't offend people. How many people know I get a little bit angry? Like it's just, it's my anger issue just arose right there. Lonnie, he's with me. Like, you know, we're like, we're like, man, it's just, we get angry at that kind of thing. Because here's the thing I said, if you're not preaching from the authority of Christ, what authority are you preaching? Paul said this, Paul said this in Galatians 5.1, if we were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ, no one would be offended. In other words, if we, if we went back to, hey, you can earn salvation by doing good, by being good, then no one will be offended. But because we preach that salvation comes by grace, you can't earn it, you can't deserve it, it's just given. People get offended at that. I, I told him, our church, we're not, we're not PC. That means politically correct. That's not us. We, we preach the Bible. So if that makes us not PC, we're not PC. I even thought that maybe that should be our next campaign. Not PC, neither are we. I, I don't know, maybe we'll just, 
Maybe not. I don't know. Why don't, why don't you do something? Today we're going to continue in our series, Not Religious. It's kind of been a series that we've been on for the last 10 weeks, but we're right now today in the middle of a three-part sermon I'm preaching, started last week and finishing next Sunday. And uh, this is part two today. And I've kind of given this, this sermon a, a subtitle, and the subtitle is Get Your Lean On. Get your lean on, all right? We're going to get our lean on today, but why don't you find 10 of the best looking people you can and give them a high five before you take your seat. 10 of the best looking people. 10 of the best. Choose wisely. Thanks, worship team. Choose. Choose wisely. Ten. It's easy to find 10 good looking people in this church. Oh. Love it. Love it. Awesome. Hey, quick question, church. Well, the remainder of you find another good-looking person to high-five. I know it was tough. But just quick question, just so I know. How many people here have ever had a performance review before? A performance review. Maybe it's in your work life. You've had a performance review. How many people have had one recently and are still shaken by the process? Got to tell you, performance reviews have to be probably the the singular most nerve-wracking thing in a working career. You know, when you know that your job is possibly on the line because of your performance. I have had many performance reviews over my time. I remember the first year of ministry, really, uh, with just brand new youth pastors. Kira and I, we we took on a youth ministry and uh, on the conditions of the the role, because, you know, they didn't know if it would be any good or not. they, They said, well, after one year... We'll give you a performance review and, you know, if the review is good, then, you know, we'll let you continue in ministry. But, you know, if it's not, find, go and be an electrician or something like that. Because um, that's what I was, nothing bad against electricians. I was, I was an electrician previously. And so I remember we, we started the job. Our mandate was to take a, we were a part, it was a part of a large church, but the youth ministry was relatively small. And the idea was, the, the mandate was get the youth ministry growing and, you know, that kind of thing. And nothing made us feel more nauseous than just having a, a group of church kids do church games on a Friday night. We said, if we're going to do this, we want to reach a city. We want to reach into high schools. We want to see revival break out amongst young people. So we went to work, man. We went to work. We started getting some influence around the city. We started having these great outreach events and things were going fantastic. Things were looking up, man. Everyone was like happy. Man, my pastor was happy. He was really pleased. The board were like, they were loving life. You know, we had elders back then. You know, elders are like, they're happy. And, you know, things are going good up until about a month before my performance review. It just so happened, and I don't know why the devil decided then, that he was going to try and corrupt my career path. Right there, like one month out from my performance review, everything started to go wrong. When, when I started the job, they gave me a, a big pad of, of incident reports sheets, you know, sheets I could fill out. There was, I hadn't even used one of them until four weeks before my performance review. And it just started, we had these skate ramps and... One of these, uh, one of these kids decided on a scooter that he had some confidence this one night. Some girls were watching him and he thought, man, I could do a double backflip on a scooter. So he decided to do a double backflip. He broke his leg and I had to fill in an incident report. And because of that report, the church's insurance premium went up by double because we didn't have 
that the ramps on the policy, but now we do. And so, so they were paying double. Thank you very much, Pastor Adam. And so then the, the very same night, it, one, of the, one of the new girls to the youth ministry, she decided that it would be a really great attention-seeking moment to take all of her antidepressant tablets right in one moment. And right when I'm in front of a parent, come and tell me, I've just taken all these tablets, what should I do? That was an ambulance ride and an incident report. The very next week, the very next week, we had, we had all these, this big outreach event and, and, and my oversight decided it would be great to just come. All of a sudden, we had some incidents. Maybe I should just come and just check out how Adam's really running things around here. And, and in this night, she's up the back, this, this oversight, and then we've got the, the, the nights going on. We've got like kids going crazy, just having fun, worshiping Jesus. And then out of nowhere, a, another kid came up and punched another, one kid in the head, knocked him out, and then ran out the doors. And, I, and this is right in front of my oversight. And she's just like looking at this thing. And I saw this happen. So I'm like running down the street trying to grab this kid. And I slammed into the ground, put the right knee of fellowship into him. And, and then, and as I'm holding him down, waiting for the police to come, and the police come and the police are saying, man, this kid's saying that you heard him. I'm like, yeah, I heard him. But I'm a pastor. It's okay. And he's like, oh, right, cool, no worries. Well, I'll just, I'll hang out because I had to go in and preach right now, right? So he's like, I'll just hang out, I'll ask you some more questions afterwards. So the whole time I'm preaching, there's, there's a policeman up the back, just arms folded, waiting for me to get off stage to ask me some more questions. Man, the pressure was insane. I didn't even know if I used the Bible then. I was like, I turned into that other church. You know, I wasn't even using the Bible. I was being PC. You know, I'm like, it was, it was nerve wracking. And then, like to make that worse, the very next week, all the boards show up to youth ministry, and they're all watching my performance. I remember my performance review. I go in front of the board, and I'm sitting there, and they're all out on the table. They've positioned all these incident reports. It was like a tablecloth. There was so many of them. <laughs> and I can remember like, sitting there, and they're like, so, so Adam, how do you think your performance has been? I said, pretty good. To be honest with you, yeah, pretty, pretty good. You know, I start highlighting all the things they weren't aware of, you know, all the good stuff that we'd started doing in the ministry. And they said, yeah, that sounds really good. We're, we're impressed with that. But we're, we're more interested in the recent incident reports. I said, I'm interested in that too. And um, I said, yeah, I'm really sorry. I don't know what's been going on. And, and they're like, hey, no, no, we're not upset. We're actually really happy. I said, say what? They're like, we're actually really happy because this means you're reaching the right people. This means you're actually having an impact. And yeah, sure, there's some people coming in with all sorts of stuff going on, but they're the people we're called to reach, so you can keep your job. I was happy with that. So we went wild. We started having instant reports like crazy after that, I'm telling you. It was like, do whatever you want. No, I'm just joking. But can I say that this is kind of like religion? Religion is like that eternal performance review. No matter what you do, no matter where you go, it's like your performance is on review. And performance reviews are never fun. They only ever draw out the failings. How many people know that? They often start off with, man, you're doing so good, but but we've noticed this about your life. And this is what religion does. Religion loves to, to put us on a, on a permanent performance Review and we allow, and what religion does is it, depending on our performance, it determines our position or determines our confidence. And to be honest with you, the, the problem isn't so much that I fail, that's not so much the problem, it's what failure produces in my life that's the problem. Pro- failure produces things like disappointment, 
It produces things like defeat. It produces things like discouragement in our life. And the word that really sums all of these things up is the word shame. How many people know shame? The enemy loves to to put shame on us. He loves to kind of put it on us and cloak us in it and let us walk the rest of our life carrying it. And shame's different from guilt. Guilt refers to something that I have done, I feel guilty for, but shame refers to something I believe I am. You know, as a parent, I feel guilty when I, when I maybe discipline my kids too, too harshly, but, but shame will say you're a bad parent. Not something I've done, but something that I believe now that I am. And shame is, shame is heavy to carry. Shame goes next level. It will cause you to question everything you are And often it will cause you to draw back from the things of God. Shame can take a bold person and make them timid. Shame can can take a confident person and turn them into a coward. This is what shame does. Shame's heavy. And it actually happens to be, this is the number one area that that the devil uses shame to its most effectiveness. And that's in the area of identity. If he can get you to question who you are, then the devil knows he can limit your effectiveness that you can have. So today I want to do something. Today I want us to discover just how is it that we can overcome the weight of shame and take up the position that Jesus has for us and has called us to live in. Anybody want to know that today? We're going to have a good Sunday. Turn with me if you can to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, we're going to... We're going to kind of center around uh, this scene here for this week and and even next week on our Easter service. We're going to center around this scene uh, known as the Last Supper. And this is a pivotal moment for for Jesus and the disciples because on the other side of this meal is Jesus' betrayal and his crucifixion. So this this is a really pivotal moment. And I want to pick up the scene just as Jesus is revealing that one of them is about to betray him. And we've got John... Chapter 13, let's read from verse 21. It says, After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. Now you've got to understand this, that the disciples had been together for three years now. For three years, they've been kind of walking around with Jesus, seeing the miracles, hearing the, hearing the teaching. And even John records in, 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 at the end of his gospel that if everything Jesus did could have been recorded, it would have filled all the books in the world, that, that there was so much more that Jesus did. And these disciples have been around that. They've been eating together, sleeping together, doing meals. They've been doing missions trips, being sent out. And, and now to hear that one of them was going to betray him, this is, this is shock and awe right now. You can picture the scene. It says, one of them the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to his disciple and said, ask him, ask him which one he's talking about. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you're about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood what Jesus said to him. This, since Judas was in charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give some money to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. That's significant. And it was night. Now I want to highlight a couple of of characters here in this story. First and foremost, we need to understand that Jesus is the main character. In this 
story, grace is on center stage. Grace is elevated. This is grace pinnacle moment at the crucifixion where, where grace makes a way. So grace is center stage, but there's also some other characters here, the disciples. Two characters in particular, uh, Peter and John, are having a conversation. And this is a significant conversation, this interaction between these two disciples. Firstly, Peter, we need, we need to know a thing or two about Peter, because Peter is most concerned more than any other disciples at this, at this information. And what you need to know about Peter, Peter is, Peter's a bold guy. Peter's always the guy that's going to step out first, that's going to say something stupid. How many people know that? Peter has a filter problem. Anybody know one of those people? You know, the filter's missing. They just say whatever comes to their mind. And, and Peter would do that. He would often say whatever, and that, thing, that stupid thing that he would say would get him into trouble. But at the same time, Peter was a defender. Peter was loyal. Peter was, he was a fighter, not a lover. So whenever the opportunity required it, man, Peter would go to town. Man, he was, he was ready to work. He was ready for action. And this is, this is Peter. And I, I feel like sometimes so often we can identify with Peter. Anybody identify with Peter? Peter is like identifiable guy. Sometimes we say stupid things, but to be honest, the, the heart motive is right. Sometimes it's just honesty. And so we can identify with Peter. And I love this interaction that goes on here in verse 23. It says, One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter motioned to this disciple. In other words, he wasn't confident to ask himself. Anybody ever seen this before? You know, my daughter, my eldest daughter does this. She'll, she'll, when she's nervous of what the answer will be from dad, she'll send her little sisters in, like a little recon mission. And she'll, she'll, they'll come down and Sally will be like, Dad, Medea wants to know if we can have some ice cream. And you can hear Medea in the background going, oh, Sally. Because <laughs> I previously said no ice cream to Medea, so she sends a little recon. You know, it's like, see, see if that will work. But here's what's interesting is that, 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 that Peter's asking, previous bold Peter, this is, this is bold Courageous, speak your mind, not be afraid, Peter. But yet in this scene, we're seeing a timid, fearful Peter. And it's interesting to to kind of understand why, because out of all of the disciples, Peter, out of the he he was the one the most that had who struggled with grace. Not that he struggled with saving grace, the saving power of grace. You know, when Peter encountered Jesus, Jesus changed his name. We know that, right? From Simon to Peter. So grace encountered him and changed him. But what Peter struggled with was not the saving power of grace. Peter struggled with the sustaining power of grace. Because Peter would add works back into his walk with God. He, he, would, add, he would add to his salvation. He would add law to, the, to, the, to, to works. And, and even, even uh, the, um, Paul had to address this in his letter to Galatians. Paul wrote to the Galatians about the fact that they were adding things. They were saved by grace. They came into relationship with God through grace, but now they're adding things into their, into their walk with God almost to keep them in relationship with God. And when he writes it to them, he writes it and addresses and, con- and con- confronts Peter, in fact. Peter was adding and he was getting influences from outside, but he was adding circumcision into relationship with Jesus. And Paul was like saying, hey, come on, guys, you were saved by grace. Why are you adding performance back in? Why are you now adding to salvation? Why are you now adding to grace? And he says this in this brilliant, powerful letter. This is a non-PC letter, all right? He adds this to, to the Galatians in chapter 5. He says, so Christ has really set you free, period. He's like, this is a statement. So Christ has really set you free. Now make sure you stay free. 
Don't get, don't get tied up again to the slavery to the law. He says, listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I say it again. If you're trying to find favour with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. If you're trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. And get this, you have fallen away from God's grace. These are powerful words from Paul. You see, no one preaches full law. No one would really preach full law. But what people do is they blend law and grace. They'll start adding to grace that conditions that you need to live by in order to, to remain holy. Now, now that you're saved by grace, start doing this in your Christian walk. Start, start obeying these rules, these regulations, just so that you, you don't fall away from God. But, but what Paul is saying, the fact that you fall away from God is adding yourselves back into these slavery position. Paul's not talking about salvation here. Paul's talking about allowing shame to be leaped on, heaped on you again. That's what Paul's talking about. And shame has a progression. Shame starts at a guilt of poor decisions and then progresses to believing that those decisions determine who I am or who I am not. Shame begins to affect your identity. This is where Peter is at. Now, I'm building somewhere. I'm just kind of taking on a bit of a background story to get to where we really need to go. But this is, where, this is where Peter is at. Peter is once bold and confident, is now uncertain. But what makes me kind of wonder, it's interesting what got Peter to this place of doubt. What was the, what was the change in Peter? We get several indications in the Scriptures leading up to this Passover meal. In, in Luke chapter 9, we have a classic example of Peter's conflict between grace and law. We've got this passage of transfiguration in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. And just before it, in fact, is Peter's brilliant moment. You know, Peter's most famous, famous moment where, where Peter is standing before Jesus and Jesus says, uh, so who, who do people say that I am? Peter says, well, you know, some say Moses, some say Elijah, the prophets, you know. And, and Jesus says, but, but Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter, he, he responds so profoundly. He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, and has this incredible revelation Get this, verse 28, it says, about eight days later, no, no, no more than eight days later, Peter comes back. It says, Peter and John and James, Jesus took them up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see and they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which is about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. But Peter... And the others had fallen asleep. When they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with them. As Moses and Elijah were starting to leave, Peter, not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, Master, it is, it is wonderful for us to be here. This is one of those moments where Peter's going to regret everything that he just said. You know, like when you, know when you don't know what to say and just what comes out, isn't that cool? He's just like, this is, this is so wonderful for us to be here. It goes on to say this, let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now get this. I love this. It says, but even as he was speaking, even as he was saying this, even as the words were coming out of his mouth, a cloud overshadowed them and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. Then a voice from the cloud said, this is my son 
my chosen one. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, shut up. <laughs> Peter, stop talking. Because what Peter was doing in, 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 just, in just speaking, blurting out, not even knowing what he was saying, he's trying to put grace, Jesus, on the same level as law and the prophets. He was trying to put grace in even par with Moses and Elijah, Moses representing the law and, and Elijah representing the prophets. But what God was trying to do is He was trying to elevate grace. He was trying to isolate Jesus, saying that this is my chosen one, that grace is above the law and fulfills the prophecies. But Peter, was, he was struggling with this. He was trying to put it on an even playing ground. Even over back in, in John chapter 13, just before the, before the Last Supper, we have a, a record of Jesus who, just before they go to the Last Supper, He decides in this beautiful moment of, of, of servitude and, and humility, he, he decides to wash the disciples' feet. And the interaction between Peter is, is fascinating. It says this in verse 4 of John chapter 13. So he, he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. No, Peter responded, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Now Simon Peter exclaimed, get this. Then wash my hands, my head as well, not just my feet, Lord. Paul's like, wash all of me. Come on, bring it up. But, but Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need to be washed except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you, for Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said not all of you are clean. Here, here we've got Jesus revealing again to, to Peter that there is, that he, he, there is not just salvation, grace for salvation, but there is also grace that sustains us in salvation. In other words, there is, there is union with God, grace for union, and then there is grace for communion with God also. This can, be, this can be point number one, union and communion. You can write that down, union and communion. Grace for union and grace for communion. See, when I married my wife, the delectable Kira, I didn't just marry her to be in union with her. That was what we did. We were, we were joined together. We were married and we were joined in union together. But the whole reason that we were joined in union was so that we could have communion together. If you know what I'm talking about. In the same way, in relationship with Jesus, grace brings us into union with Christ so that we can have communion with Christ. Grace isn't just there for union. It's also there to sustain us in our walk with God. And John actually highlights this in his, in his gospel in 1 John. He writes about union and communion, the grace for union and the grace for communion, but he calls it fellowship. And he says this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 15. I told you I'm going to read a lot of Scripture today, all right? Just because that other church isn't reading any, we're going to make up for it, all right? So we're going we're gonna to read lots today, just so you know that. So get ready to be offended, because this one's really offensive. It says 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. John's really trying to emphasize something by saying a double negative. He's like, there is no darkness, none at all, not any. 
So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, union, then we have fellowship, communion with each other, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. This is so powerful. Sometimes believers think that when I, when I sin, I'm now in darkness. That when I sin, I'm now not in the light any longer. That for some reason when I sin, I'm out of God's light. I'm out of communion with God. That sin is what purged me out. No, no, friends. Sin separates, but sin separates us before grace came into our life. Here's what, 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 what the Bible is saying is that, that God is light. There is no darkness in Him at all. There is no darkness in God. So when you're in the light as He is in the light, there is no darkness in you. So just as we are in the light, everything we do is in the light. When I, when I eat, I eat in the light. When I sleep, I, I sleep in the light. When I work, I work where? So when I sin, where do I sin? I sin in the light. I'm still in the light. It doesn't purge me into darkness because the Bible says that when I'm in communion with God, then the blood of Jesus cleanses all sin. The fact that grace brought me into relationship with Jesus, grace also sustains me in relationship with Jesus. Oh, come on. Somebody help me preach today. This is the sustaining grace and power of Jesus. Grace not only brings us into relationship with God. Grace also keeps us in relationship with God. This is, this is fundamentally where Peter was going wrong. See, when your confidence is found in your performance, it will inevitably fail as soon as pressure is applied. Here in this scene at the Last Supper, we have Peter who has allowed his performance of the past or his failings of the past, and, and, and these are some pretty major failings. At one time when Jesus revealed that they, he was going to have to die, Peter's like, no, Lord. And then Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. It's heavy chastisement, right? And then God pretty much tells him to shut up from heaven. So <laughs> Peter's performance is a little questionable right now. And it intimidates him. It affects him to the point where now he's, he's being shy and, and timid. But there's another disciple Another disciple that's not focused on performance, another disciple that's focused on position. And you can write this down as as point number two. I've only got two points, so rest easy. There's only two points. Point number two is position over performance. It says this in verse 23. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. You've got to love this guy, John. Because... John is the disciple that Jesus loved, and John is the one writing this gospel. So effectively, John is referring to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. You know, I kind of like the attitude of John here. John's pretty happy with himself. You read other places in John where John talks about himself. He's like, that disciple and Peter were running to the tomb, and, and the other disciple outran Peter. You know, he's like, just always talking and bragging about how good he is. But, but this, is, this is John's understanding. My position is the one that Jesus loved. When I look at myself, I don't see myself as a failure. I see myself as someone that Jesus loves. That's my position. It's not on my performance. It's on who I am, my, my position. 
It says, leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Leaning back against Jesus. This was John's position, a position of leaning. It was leaning against grace. It was being supported by grace. This was the position of Jesus. He's got, he's got his lean into grace. What, is, what does it look like to lean into grace? You know, well, I, played, I played football for, for, for a number of years growing up. And um, if you don't know, Liverpool won today, by the way, for all those people who are really concerned. Liverpool beat Manchester City, still on top of the table, and they're going to win the Premier League. But I know I'm in America, so that doesn't care to you guys. So, so but playing football, my coach mentioned so many times, Adam, Adam you've got to learn the art of the lean. Because the defenders were always getting around me and beating me. And, 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 and it was an unfair advantage is really what the lean was. You, could, you kind of lean into the play. And this is what happens in soccer. I'm sorry to say this. But you kind of grab the shirt and you kind of lean in. And just by knowing that, you can tell which way they're going to go. And it's unfair advantage. But I love that because that's what grace is. Grace is unfair. It's unmerited, unearned favor from God. There is an unfair advantage that we have. It's unfair because we don't earn it, but it is given to us. Favor is unfair. Grace is unfair. But John understood that because it was unfair, I'm just going to lean into it. Man, if I had time today, I would do this illustration where I would, I would call some people up and I would get, I'd give them some building materials and I'd get them to build a structure to lean on. And then I would bring out like this, this expert structure built by expert tradesmen that was, that was strong and, I, and I'd get them to lean, choose which one they're going to lean on. I guarantee if I built something, I'm leaning on the other one. But this is what it's like. And this is what Paul is saying in the first part of Galatians. He's like, man, you're sinning if you try and rebuild your performances that you were saved from. Because your performances were the very thing that let you down. Your performances were the thing that, that held you short from reaching the religion standard. You couldn't earn it. You couldn't, you couldn't make it. You tried to build it off behavior. You tried to build it off how I can behave and how I can do, but you failed. That's why grace was what you had to lean on to come into relationship with Jesus. And he says this in Galatians chapter 2, Rather I'm a sinner, if I rebuild the old systems of the law, I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements. In other words, I, I stopped trying to put my confidence in my performance. He says, so that... I can get my lean on so that I can live for God. Friend, the devil, the devil can't shame you if the devil can't blame you. Now, we know that in Revelation, Satan is referred to as the accuser of the brethren. That's his, that's his job. You know, sometimes we kind of think his main job is temptation. His main job is accusation. But the truth is, the devil can shame you when he can blame you. And he can't shame you if he can't blame you. But you might be saying, Pastor, I've got to tell you the truth. The devil's got a lot to blame me on. He's got a lot on me. And, and I'm the same. I know the devil has a lot on me. He knows my thought life. He knows how I am. He knows what I go through. Come on, the devil has got a lot on me. So for some reason, I feel like, man, the devil's got a lot to blame me of. But what... John was doing, John knew the art of the lean into grace. Because when you lean into grace, you begin to agree with the devil. When the devil says, man, you're not worthy to, 
to do that. You don't, you're not good enough. You don't reach the mark. You can't make yourself holy. Instead of trying to construct the performance to, to be good and behave and not say the wrong thing, man, not, not to curse someone out on the 101 during peak hour traffic, you know, not to, not to do all those things that you know the enemy will blame you and shame you with. When you realize, man, I can't do that, you lean into grace and you say, you know what, I know I'm not worthy, but it's not by worth, it's by birth that I receive grace from God. And that same grace that brings me into relationship with Him is the same grace that will continue me in relationship with Him. When I'm in the light, the blood of Jesus covers all sin. I don't know what... I don't know what the devil's trying to blame you of today, church. Maybe it's your parenting. Maybe he's trying to blame you for not being such a good husband, not being such a good wife. Maybe maybe he's trying to blame you for just being an average person altogether. I, I don't know what the devil's trying. I know what he's trying to blame me of. I know what he tries to shame me of. But the devil can't blame your performance when you're not leaning on your performance. Instead, you lean on grace. I feel it's time for us as a church to stop leaning on our own performance and lean into grace. It's time for us to get our lean on. Turn your neighbor and say, get your lean on. Get your lean on. What does that mean to get your lean on? It means just to trust God. It means to stop stop letting condemnation get heaped up in your life. Because the Bible says in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means if you're carrying the weight of shame, if you're carrying the weight of guilt this morning, you're carrying something you were never meant to carry. God says that we can do a weight shift. That means we can cast our cares, our burdens on Him for He cares. That means we can take all of that junk that we've been carrying for far too long. And this morning we can do business with God and we say, God, I don't want to carry this weight anymore. I don't want to carry this regret of the past. I don't want to carry this guilt and this shame, believing I've been one person when I know that you've actually called me to be something else. By grace, you have saved me. By grace, you will sustain me. And we can take all of that and we can give it to God and allow the grace of God, the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from all sin. It's powerful, friend. It's powerful. You mean I get to trade up? I get to trade my junk for your grace? Exactly. There's nothing more scandalous than this. Thank you for listening to today's message. We trust you heard from God and that you're more encouraged, more refreshed, and more in love with Jesus than you were before. If you ever find yourself in the Bay Area, we'd love for you to come and attend a service. For more information about C3SV, please visit www.c3sv.com. Thank you.